listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am Ray, caught in the black void of emotions. <laughs> I, I guess I should add that to, to my title as well. I completely agree. And speaking of black voids, Ray and I have been talking about science fiction films. And Ray, I'm, I've had a lot of fun doing these episodes and focusing on a specific topic. I think it's been cool that we were able to do some recommendations, talk about some specific films. And I'm really excited about today's episode because I think it'll be cool to just cover a topic more broadly. And I'll be interested to see what direction the conversation goes about this subject matter yeah i'm excited i've been trying to come up with ways we can mix things up keep it keep it always interesting so ray we're talking about science fiction movies and i thought that this would be interesting because i found this article today and i just thought that it would be fun to bring some of these up but you and i are both big fans of the science fiction genre we love science fiction movies but i thought it would be interesting to go through this list that this website made up called slash film that they brought up this list of science fiction movies that caused mass walkouts in the theaters and i just thought that it'd be fun to talk about some of these movies all right i'm i'm game the first one it doesn't really surprise me very much because the film was released in 1971 and i feel like if the movie was released now i can't imagine that it would be the exact same reaction but the first film is stanley kubrick's a clockwork orange you know, I haven't seen that movie mostly because I've um the subject matter seems like maybe something that I'm not I'm not quite ready for, but I doesn't surprise me. It it doesn't surprise me. It's really funny because it is a film that I <sighs> I, growing up in a really conservative household, uh, I feel like there was a lot of times in my life that I had people tout, um, tout that films were like really extreme and really disturbing. And honestly, like Clockwork Orange now, if you watch it in 2022, is incredibly tame. I think the reason why there's one scene in particular that has like an implication of rape, uh, it doesn't like show it graphically on screen, but it is very like disturbing in context. And the whole film is Stanley Kubrick's like look at violence and how violence is you know, attributed to society, how can it warp the brains of people, and kind of like a larger commentary into our society now on like, you know, video games and mass media and how our government has accused so much to the attribution of like teenagers and kids fighting each other or mass shootings or whatever attributed to media. And I think the movie is an incredible commentary on that. And obviously through the years, the film has been touted as this incredible masterpiece, which it is, it has amazing performances. But this is one that came up on the list and I was like, yeah, 1971 to have a scene that was a little bit more sexually violent it doesn't really surprise me that people were walking out of that movie yeah especially when you hear some of the stuff people walk out of in this day and age at like the Cannes film festival or something like that uh, it doesn't surprise me that one wouldn't make the list that one, that one i can totally see why 
100%. So this one will make you laugh a little bit. This one came out in 2008, and the film uh, the film was widely a success for the most part, um, but it said that this film generated walkouts because it caused people to get nauseous, it made people sick, and that movie is Cloverfield. I have heard of that, yes. Uh, I unfortunately never saw it in theaters, but I adore the Cloverfield movies. Um, particularly the first two. Yeah, so apparently even despite the success, people thought that it was really nauseating to watch, which, I I mean, I worked at at a movie theater when this came out. It was really early on in my career at the movie theater, so I don't remember specifically watching this in the theater, so I can't attest to that, but I will say, like, I did... um, Uh, Just today on my YouTube channel, I ranked all the Paranormal Activity films, and I remember when the first Paranormal Activity film came out and I worked at the theater, we had people getting up and puking in the theater, people having panic attacks and all that, and I mean, if you think about it, in 2008, Cloverfield and Paranormal Activity were really kind of like the spark to this found footage genre that people... Blair Witch obviously started it in 1999, but I feel like Paranormal Activity and Cloverfield popularized the genre to where there were a ton of ripoffs and and all different kinds of films trying to be like those movies. And I get it. I mean, if you're going into a theater and you're used to like this really cinematic cinematography and you go in and you watch this film that looks completely like it's shot on a consumer-grade VHS camcorder, it would be kind of jarring. You know, as much as I love those Cloverfield movies, as much as I adore that first Cloverfield movie, I would have thought people would have walked out because the first 20 minutes of the movie, nothing freaking happens. Yeah, that it really is a slow burn movie, but it does the payoff of the third act is 100% oh. worth it. Amazing. Yeah, I love that first Cloverfield, and believe it or not, I actually just, uh, I'll talk about it at the end of the episode, I just watched um, the new Predator sequel, Prey, and I didn't realize the director of that, Dan Trachtenberg, is the guy who did... 10 Cloverfield. Yeah, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I still have not seen. Oh. Yeah, so I I need to. It's add a good thing. It's a good thing you haven't. I I almost I have almost brought that movie several times into some of our recommendation lists. Yeah, I have not seen it still, and I one hundred percent need to watch it. So Cloverfield was the next movie on this list, and then the third film on the list, Ray. I don't think that this will surprise you. Talking about nineteen seventy one and A Clockwork Orange, this film came out in nineteen seventy nine. And is it's Ridley Scott's Alien. Apparently, this film was incredibly controversial enough to where people were like boycotting it because of the quote unquote gross out moments in this film. And apparently, despite its eventual success, people were walking out on a regular basis in the showings due to the chestburster scene, which I feel like. Yes, it is an incredibly violent sequence, but I feel like compared to a lot of 1970s slasher movies, despite that scene, I mean, it hits all those hallmarks that people look for in that type of a movie. It doesn't really surprise me. I feel like audiences are growing now to where we're so desensitized because of how awful our society is in general now 
that uh, it's it's just one of those things where I couldn't be surprised that in that day and age that people see this giant creature jumping out of a dude's chest and they're like, ooh, I need to leave. Get my kids out of here. Before you continue, have you yourself ever witnessed people walk out of a movie? Yeah, oh, multiple times. When I, I work, I, oh, really? yes, I've worked. Oh, that's right, because yeah. you worked at the movie. I worked at a theater. Like I said, Paranormal Activity was one people walked out of pretty regularly and there's actually going to be a film later on in this list that I worked at the movie theater when it was first released and we had mass walkouts in this theater and it wasn't even necessarily because the subject matter is gross or disgusting it's for a completely other reason but I'll get to it when we get to that movie on the list it'll make for a fun story so the next one I'm not really going to be surprised but this is a uh a film that Ray and I actually discussed on one of the episodes not uh, a few episodes ago and uh, this film did was hailed by critics as a masterpiece but it was a box office flop it didn't do very well and that is the 2013 film Under the Skin <laughs> I mean I'm not really I'm not really surprised people walked out of this movie. I'm I'm not really This does not seem like a film that really appeals to general audience members. Well, and especially with Scarlett Johansson was already at the height of her popularity because of Black Widow. A24 does this thing, and this article actually mentioned it early on, but didn't get into any detail like some of these other films. A24 is horrible about marketing their movies. They do a really terrible job. Uh, a lot of times you'll see a trailer for a movie, and I'll go in and watch it, and I'll still really appreciate it, but I'll be like, oh, this is nothing like what the, the trailer touted it to be. And if you watch the trailer for Under the Skin, it feels like this really fast-paced intense uh crazy science fiction movie and it's a very slow burn thought-provoking film and it's and the article mentioned at the beginning of the movie it comes at night which was also a horribly marketed movie from a24 that ended up being a thought-provoking and incredible film that i loved a lot and i think that that happens a lot of times where general audiences will see a trailer and they'll be like oh i feel like this was gonna be one thing and then they get in there and it's something completely different the next one which i will not probably be a surprise to ray either is star Star Wars The Last Jedi, <laughs> which uh, prompted a mass amount of walkouts. I think this is probably, I know that, I still haven't seen Rise of Skywalker. I know that's the most hated one, but I feel like this is the most polarizing film in the Star Wars franchise where you're either someone who's like, Ryan Johnson's the greatest director of all time and it's the best movie I've ever seen or it's just like a run-of-the-mill, not super interesting Star Wars movie. And so I feel like for people who are like big fans of the franchise, they probably went in and watched this movie and were like, um, no. And then everybody else is like, oh, this is so fresh and interesting, even though it's not that either. Um, I, I it, This one is probably the least surprising to me on this list. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like I, I've I've said this numerous times. I am not a Star Wars like aficionado. For me, Star Wars they're they're good. They're fine. They're cool. So um, I, I wasn't bent out of shape. But I watched it. I was like, oh, it was Star Wars. To me, to me, it was. I've, I think I said this on a previous episode. It was a film that ended exactly where it began. None of the plot points in the movie, other than 
killing Snoke really changed anything about the movie. I felt like the characters were in the same spot that they were in as the movie started out. I felt like there was a lot of, I mean, this movie was like 152 minutes or something. It felt like super padded. And at that point I was just like, you know what? Disney is do is tiring me of star Wars the same way they're tiring me of Marvel. They, I read this article this morning where this critic came out and said, you know what, Marvel, you should like take like a year or two break between making movies and give some people time so that these films can be more special to people because if you look at the reviews of not only Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness but Thor Love and Thunder people are not loving these movies the way that they used to they're getting very run-of-the-mill responses and I feel like it's because it has become less about the passion behind the filmmaking and more just about the money-making machine which is incredibly unfortunate and uh, I used to love going to see those Marvel movies in the theater. And I don't even remember the last time I went to a theater to watch. Oh, no, I watched that at home. I don't remember the last time I went to a theater to watch a Marvel movie. I, I actually saw Love and Thunder in theaters because I love Taika. I went more because I love Taika Waititi. And it was it was good. The, the thing about it is a lot of people are trashing Love and Thunder. And I think to myself... Is it because the movie is actually as bad as everyone making it sound? Or is it because we're just so fatigued that we are just kind of cynical about them now? Rather than before where everyone was looking forward to the conclusion, to the culmination of, of Endgame. Now there is not that like culmination coming anymore. So now they do feel like run-of-the-mill movies because there's no longer a higher purpose like with Endgame. Well, you know, the thing is too about that. Like, I'm, I'm a huge Taika Waititi fan, and my sister and I really bond over his movies. We've seen, I think he's an incredible director, and I still haven't seen Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, but she also watched that, and she's familiar with Sam Raimi's work and both Taika Waititi's work, and she told me that both of those films felt like Marvel did not let those filmmakers make the movies that they wanted and that you could kind of tell where like the studio stepped in and said, eh, you need to make this less of a your movie and more of a Marvel movie. And I feel like compared to where it seems like they give James Gunn free will to do whatever he wants with Guardians of the Galaxy, those movies don't feel as tampered with as like some of these films made by these really well-known renowned directors who don't even get a full vision. And it's like my sister was telling me you could see glimpses of the things that they do in those movies. Like you can feel like where their hands are on it a little, but the studio interference is huge. And I think that that's part of the problem is they're just creating the same formulaic films and not giving directors the ability to like make something new. Like for instance, if you look at 2017, the film Logan, that's a Marvel film that feels like its own thing. It feels like it's doing something completely unique you know what's funny i read a random article that said that hugh jackman actually took a pay cut just so they can keep that movie r-rated that's insane and i'm glad they did because it really added another layer to it so this last film on the list ray is one that i have not seen and i'm not sure if you've seen it but i worked at the movie theater when this came out and people were walking out of this left and right and i'm curious as to 
whether or not it's due to the runtime of the film or just the subject matter of the movie, but the film is 2012's Cloud Atlas. I've never seen Cloud Atlas. I haven't either, uh, and I know I walked in on bits and pieces of it when I worked at the theater. It came out in 2012, and the, the, the plot arc of the film sounds fascinating, but when it came out at the theater, we had so many people walk out of this movie and request refunds or swaps to other theaters because they said that it was just so confusing the runtime was too bloated i think this movie is like two and a half hours if i remember right and i know it's like all over the place tom hanks plays like six different characters throughout the film and it's one that i has been on my list to watch for a really long time but i just like haven't got around to it but i something like that that seems really large on the scale of like being able to understand and process these characters, it it makes sense why people probably walked out of this movie. Yeah, I I've never seen it, so I I'm curious now though. A hundred percent. I'm gonna add it onto my list. So there you go, guys. There's some films, some science fiction movies that people walked out on. Ray and I's opinions, which leads us into our episode today. Which Ray, I'm gonna pass it over to you, so that that way you can give our uh, our listeners a little uh, insight into what we're gonna be chit chatting about today. Well, so judging from from the title, you know we're gonna be talking creatures. I'm excited. I'm really excited because I feel like this is. This is kind of a new grounds for us. I feel like we're going to venture into a new, like a different format where we get to, where obviously we're going to talk about movies and we might touch on some abstract spoilers due to the nature of some of these movies. Some of these creatures are big reveals. I want to focus more on the creature, the design, what they entail. Maybe there's a representation or a commentary being told through this creature, or maybe there's just a really fun creature in the sci-fi world that we want to talk about. So I just thought it'd be fun to do that, to just put together a list and talk about some of uh, our favorite creatures that we have seen over the years, whether it was when we were younger or now that we're older. And yes, we're not going to cover every single creature. So like if people are like, oh, you didn't talk about X, Y, and Z, it's like because there are so many creatures in this universe that we only pick five because we don't want to do a five-hour-long episode. We we also have lives to live. Essentially what Ray is saying is, we're going to do whatever the hell we want and you're going to like it. <laughs> That's, I mean, that, you don't... You, you don't have to like it, but don't tell us. Yeah, don't that. don't tell us you don't like it. No, I'm actually really excited about this, Ray. It was fun. When I was making the list, I was, I was thinking about uh, exactly what you were saying, which is like, you know, a, a lot of these that are on my list, I'm excited to talk about the design and, and the way that they were executed in these movies. But at the same time, I think it'll be cool to kind of apply it to, you know, sometimes these have like symbolic representations. There's themes surrounding why these creatures are important. And I think that'll be fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I feel like our lists are going to be drastically different which is very exciting to me the first one is probably going to be the most uh accessible one as far as like uh it's not really surprising why i added this onto my list uh it's something that has meant a lot to me since i was a young child and i feel like this is a film that is not it's in a movie it's a creature that's in a movie that could be classified as science fiction sort of but it's probably more looked at as horror and the first creature i want to talk about is the mogwai from gremlins 
Oh, uh, yay! I was I I was hoping you would bring the Mogwai. Yeah, so I'm a huge Gremlins fan. I'm actually a proponent of Gremlins 2, the new batch, uh, which I think is a misunderstood masterpiece. I love both of I these movies. I adore part two. Yeah, I love both movies. I think they're fantastic. And I think what I love the most about the Mogwai in general is that this was before CGI. There was no, you know, computer generated animation in these movies. So they had to use, Joe Dante had to use what was at his disposal, make this work. And the fact that all of these creatures are done through puppeteering is absolutely insane to me. There are so many moments. One of the moments, it's super simplistic, Ray, but one of the moments that just kind of shows how impressive the work is, is. In the first Gremlins movie, one of the first times that you see a, like a gremlin after it was transformed is that scene in the kitchen where Billy's mom is eventually going to have to fight these people off or fight these gremlins off where the gremlin eats the cookie. <laughs> and just the pub, the puppeteering on that is insane. The way that it moves so flu fluidly and the way that it looks is so great. And I love Gizmo is obviously, you know, the the cute, inviting, fuzzy uh, Mogwai that everyone wanted. And it's almost like Gremlin when they made Gremlins 2, they made him look cuter. Like, it was like they are like, oh, we knew how well Gremlins 1 did. We want to sell some toys. So I feel like even Gizmo's face... In the, in the second Gremlins movie is much cuter and looks much cleaner than in the first one. He's kind of a mix of cute and kind of gross. But, like, when he gets turned into a Gremlin, when the, all the Gremlins get made after he gets wet, the Gremlins are such the opposite of that and the complete polar opposite, as in they're these very disgusting, gross-looking creatures that are truly menacing and horrifying in the first Gremlins film. And in the second movie, they're played off more as these, like, comedic farces where each gremlin has this like really goofy persona to itself that makes it really for a ridiculous watch i really i was actually just watching something about this last night bill dante right that's the name of the director he was so against making an, a sequel he was so against it and eventually they gave him a really good deal and he took it but then he used these characters on gremlins too to almost make fun of themselves and the way like you are you're talking about they all have different you know different personalities you have you know you have a and key and peel have a phenomenal skit about this and i love i love the gremlins like you have a gremlin that talks man and he's super smart and brainy <laughs> it's so funny because that's really what it feels like but what what i think so interesting is and like i said this kind of teetering into science fiction because i don't feel like this is a film that's normally touted as a sci-fi movie but what i love is the sort of mystique behind the mogwai we don't know whether they're alien we don't really know whether they've been here for forever we don't really know much about their backstory and i feel like now if gremlins was a franchise made in the 2020s it, there'd be five prequel movies explaining every little thing about these creatures and i love the mystique behind it and it adds a whole nother layer to these films and i know there's been a gremlins 3 in active development for years but what worries me is i feel like if they ever made another gremlins movie that they'd try to do cgi with it and i think that'd take a lot of the charm away because i think the puppeteering makes it what it is. 
Well, and I feel like that era of films, the puppeteering, they had gotten puppeteering down to an art form. You know, you have, obviously you have the, the Muppets, you have even, you know, Jim Henson with, you know, the Dark Crystal as well. Like there was something to be said about the puppete puppeteering skills back in those days that when Gremlins came around, they had already perfected it. So you have, you know, Gizmo. There's so many things about Gizmo, his facial expressions, even how he shivers when he's scared when, you know, Stripe and all the gremlins are kind of messing with him. You know it's a puppet, but he looks so real. I feel like that puppeteering really brings life into these characters and makes them so excited to watch. And then when the gr the gremlins later on in the film start to create havoc, it's, it's just amazing. I feel like the only shot in the movie that really looks cheap and because of the CGI they couldn't really do anything about it is the scene where all the gremlins run down the street at the same time and it's that really cheap looking stop motion. But what are you going to do in this time period? You have to utilize what you have and make the best of it. But I think that both the gremlins films are amazing. I love the Mogwai. I think they're so much fun and that's my first creature I wanted to bring up. My favorite scene is the bar scene since we're dating back to our childhood traumas since we're since we're this is this just turned into a group therapy session number one pick i i hope you're familiar with this movie i watched it when i was a kid it's actually a musical i can't deny how much i watched this thing i loved it my dad introduced me to it and i'm talking about audrey 2 from little shop of horror so this is really hilarious uh i have actually never seen little shop of horrors believe it or not. And I was actually talking to my sister this weekend because we went and saw Rocky Horror Picture Show in a theater. And I was like, I need to watch Little Shop of Horrors now because I've heard so many great things about it. It's great. And I'll just, so I'll just give you like a little um, rundown. So Rick Moranis works for like a flower shop that's dwindling. Also like, this is a remake. I guess there's an original one that I haven't seen. So I am strictly talking about the Rick Moranis version. They need a new attraction to attract more customers. And one day he's walking down the street and suddenly there's a little bolt of lightning that hits this little shop and he finds a little plant that's basically like eventually grows to be a, a human killing plant but it they allude that it came from outer space and the thing is hilarious i mean it, first of all you're watching a musical and the way that this thing works is it starts dying and rick moranis wants to keep it alive so he realizes that the way he keeps the plant alive is by feeding it its blood and then it comes to life and it starts talking and singing and then it becomes this like really wild cheesy musical but the plant itself audrey too whom he names after his his um, love interest it's just it's just funny because you know you i don't know if you've heard that line where he's like feed me it looks the thing i love is that the design looks like a venus flytrap and i've always loved the way the design looks and from clips i've seen the puppeteering work in the film looks phenomenal it is and you you see the the thing that i thought was interesting is that the the plant i had to look it up real quick was voiced by somebody named levi stubbs who was actually a, a singer in the 60s that was known for like working on like Motown and that type, you know, that type of music. So he's already like an actual well-known singer. So the plant has a really good singing voice. Even little, little nuances that the plant has that, you know, the lips, it has very full lips, has, as it grows. And there's this great scene where he keeps, Rick Moranis is forced to feed the plant people, otherwise the plant will die and he needs to keep his shop running 
so there's this great scene where he shows up with the plant and he feeds it. You know, there's the montage of him feeding people to the plant. And then it cuts back and then the plant is just full. Like there is like, it's almost like a whole forest has built behind the plant. And the plant becomes more demanding. So it, it's it's hilarious too because the, the interactions that he has with Rick Moranis, the plant is a little pervy. It tries to like lift up girls' skirts with its tendrils, tentacles, I guess you would call it at this point. It's a hilarious movie. And then, you know, you get appearances not only from Rick Moranis, but also from like Steve Martin and John Candy. So that sounds amazing. Uh, I really like that a lot. And I, obviously, like I said, I've never seen this film. But I've seen the, I've seen some of the effects and and videos of Audrey too, and I've always been really interested in it. So I'm gonna have to like push this to the front of things I watch in the very near future. It's a fun time, and like I said, the dialogue or the voice acting for for the plant is really fun. Like I said, they got an actual Motown singer, so it's got like a really like rich baritone voice singing for the plant. It's great. Uh, like I said, it's a musical. It's it's super fun. I hear that there's like a, a more bleak version of it, like the original one, but I haven't seen that one, so I can't speak for the design or the creature character on that one. But for, as far as the Rick Moranis go, it's, it's a fun like horror comedy musical. And like I said, there's not really a whole lot of information about the plant itself all you are is in a scene it kind of gives you the the illusion that it came from outer space basically so glad you brought this up because i've been talking about it with my family a lot lately so i'm excited to finally sit down and watch this so this is actually going to be one of the newest creatures probably that i'm going to talk about and the reason why is i feel like i can also kind of shove in another creature that means a lot to me at the same time and this creature has one of the coolest designs I think I've ever seen. I was obsessed with it when it came out. I still think about it to this day. And that is the asset from Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. You know what? I almost brought The Shape of Water and it got edged out last minute. Yes. And the reason why I bring this up is, and this is not on my list, and that's because I felt like I didn't really know a way to talk about it for an extended amount of time. But my favorite creature of all time is the creature from the Black Lagoon. It was a movie that really meant a lot to me growing up. It was one of my big introductions into horror. And uh, when you read about The Shape of Water and Guillermo del Toro's idea for this film, just looking at the asset, you can tell that it's very much based on the creature from the Black Lagoon and its design and the way that it's face looks and it's almost like a swap of the uh the idea of the creature from the black lagoon the creature from the black lagoon wants to kidnap this woman and in this movie it's the complete opposite where the woman wants to 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 get the asset out of this horrible situation and the way that it's being treated in this government facility and the film is brilliant i think it's a beautiful love story i think on top of that it's just a gorgeous like almost fairy tale but the creature design of the asset is amazing i love the blue that's kind of rich through its body that kind of lights up the gill work on this is amazing and it's clear that Guillermo del Toro is one of those few directors who still wants to attempt to make his films as practical as possible and I remember watching this movie and I was like what an amazing way to combine practical effects 
with CGI in a way that really blends perfectly. And you can kind of see influences from his Hell uh, Boy movies with the fish-like creature from that film getting into this movie. And I think that's also played by Doug Jones. And Doug Jones has been a creature actor for forever. He's done so much amazing work in his throughout his entire career. I think this film has such a beautiful message to it and it's just an amazing movie about like loving yourself for who you are despite your differences and despite possibly being viewed as an outcast and looked at differently by other people and you know being embraced by someone because um, Sally Hawkins's character is deaf and she has such a hard time relating to other people and feeling accepted in her own skin and she meets this creature and um, they immediately bond because they're both outcasts from society and the creature knows how to communicate with Sally Hawkins's character and it, it it's just such a beautiful movie and I think what really added to that for me is I'm a huge sucker for character dramas and romance films in general that have more of like an elevated horror sense to them and this movie kind of blends romance horror comedy everything but the focus on this creature and just how amazing it looks really added to that experience for me so big fan when it comes to that that creature yeah like like you said i love i love the creature the obvious creature of the black lagoon inspiration but also like something i really appreciated too about this movie um, and not to get off too off topic, but like this movie won Best Picture. And that made me really, really excited because I feel like seeing a creature film, you know, win Best Picture that year was so meaningful because I feel like as when we talk about creatures, I feel like a lot of people think, oh, creatures are just these like scary looking things. But I guess we'll talk about later on one of my picks. A lot of these creatures could be representative of something beautiful of something heartfelt or something that really brings joy and great emotions to your heart and i feel like the asset is a prime example you know a representation that just because something looks weird or different that doesn't make that thing any less beautiful exactly and let's not forget and i know we're talking specifically about creatures ray but let us not forget the incredible Alexander Desplat score in this film that I think really just oh Lord. No. elevates this movie to another level because I remember the score just honestly haunting me when I watched this movie, just how amazing it was. Like I, I, I never would have expected the, the score of the film to affect me just as much as the movie did, but it, it really is just an absolutely beautiful score. And one of the things I appreciate what you were saying about this winning the best picture is not only did a creature film win best picture, but a person of uh, Hispanic heritage won his film won best, best director and he won best director and i think it was just a really important year for film and i know there was a lot of people who gave a lot of what i would say unnecessary backlash about like oh it's a movie about a person who has sex with a fish monster and it's like it's like what we talked about with her like completely un misunderstanding the entire point of what the film is going for and it's just a beautiful movie 
and it's a beautiful, like I said, fairy tale, essentially. It, it really does feel like a fairy tale, and it's a beautiful movie. The, the, the creature design is amazing, and I don't have much more to say about it because otherwise we'll just rave the entire episode, but I felt like it was important to include this because it's one of the few instances I can think of of a real, like, memorable creature in a film that isn't just, like, a side character or, like, put, like, pushed in the background. It's, like, the asset is, like, the biggest part of this movie with Sally Hawkins' character. He is a lead character. The only thing I will I will add to this, this whole discourse about the asset is I also thought it was really interesting that in a creature movie, the real monster is the human being, which is, um, I forget the character's name, but the the guy doing all the experiments on the asset. I just thought it was interesting that in a creature film, the monster actually is the human. Yes, exactly. Um, and that is, um, that's uh, Michael Shannon. He is, he, and there he plays an incredible villain. So I'm ready. Hit me with your next pick. Well, as we're talking about, you know, creatures that aren't bad people, that they're, that they're bad creatures, good creatures. We're talking good creatures right now. Um, I figure it was it would be worth to piggyback off of yours with the heptapods on Denis Villeneuve's Arrival. Yay! A movie I watched yesterday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, that's uh, this. I'm excited to hear you talk about this because I thought it was such a cool creature design. So Abbott and Costello, as they are aptly named, I thought this was interesting because I feel like when we talk about. Um, alien encounter movies we think all oh, these aliens are coming to prove us they're coming to you know kidnap us so they can study us but these are really interesting because they're not here for that they are actually for a good chunk of the movie trying to communicate with this awesome language by the way like i thought that those ink circles are so fascinating and i wish i could know more about that how they came with came up with that because they look almost squid-like at first. You just they look like hands, but each hand, each quote-unquote finger, almost looks tentacle-like. And when they're trying to communicate something to each other, which by the way, I don't know if you picked this up. I know you only watched it once, but I thought it was really cool that when they're trying to communicate with the humans, they're doing these like circular language, um, these like circle ink, ink circles, whatever you want to call them. But they also talk amongst themselves in their own language. Yes, I thought that it was awesome. And the attention to detail in that, and then I love when um, they're first discovering what the language actually is and how it works and how Amy Adams says when they, when they put those symbols up and they show those symbols that it's not just as simple as like a single word. It's like these complex sentences that they essentially decipher through picking apart like the wavelengths in the circular patterns, which I thought was amazing. Something that I also thought was really fascinating, and for those of you who haven't seen Arrival, we're probably going to touch on some spoilers in this section, so, you know, just be, be aware. I thought it was really, really fascinating that the these designs are circular, so, you know, you it's that meaning of it's a, it's a circular thing, like it's never-ending, it has no beginning and no end. And Amy Adams is discovering things about her future and her life is not being looked at through a linear way, but a circular way, 
which I thought that connection was really fascinating. Yes, 100%. And obviously, you know, without getting into spoiler territory or anything, this movie has a lot to say about time and the way that time rotates, like what what Ray was saying. And it's such a huge point in the film. And they do such a great job of making the language incorporated in that. And it what I love about this movie is the, the whole reveal of what's going on is done so subtly through so many little nuances in the film. What I want to say is with the heptapods too, and I know we'll get some more into talking about it, I love that their design is so complex in the way that like, they. I was telling Ray this before the podcast started, they look kind of like these octopus esque creatures but they're they also kind of look like a human hand and it's interesting because when you watch the film you don't really get a full look at what they look like until the very end of the movie and even so they're still a little hazy to where you're kind of like building it together in your head of exactly what they look like they're they're freaking huge they're giant but they move like squid like when they're moving in this in this like fog type of thing. And I just thought Denis Villeneuve put so much attention to detail in their appearance and the way that they look. And I just was obsessed with the, the creature design in this movie. Yeah, the creature design was incredible. I also was a big fan of um, their spaceship. That it was so simplistic, so simplistic. I love later on in the movie when they send the um, the pod down to get Amy Adams when the ship is like hovering above ground. And I love how simplistic even that design was and how much attention to detail there was in like her getting in there and the way that it closes up. It, oh, it was just so... It's, there's, Denis Villeneuve is such a, an attention to detail type of director that I feel like there was a lot of work that went into not only the creature design, but like Ray was saying, the spaceship design as well. And the other thing that I really appreciated about the these aliens, much like we were talking about with the asset, is their motives aren't evil. Their motives aren't, they're not here to conquer Earth. They're not here to study us and prove us. They're here to help us. They're actually here because they view time in a very circular way and humans see it in such a linear way that they have seen things to come and they are coming to Earth to give us the tools to prevent from certain events to happen. And I just thought that was really interesting because very seldom do we see these alien movies or these creature movies, I might add, through the lens of like, these creatures aren't evil. They're actually, they're actually good. They're here to help us. And I love that Denis Villeneuve looks at it more through the lens of our own society and how stupid our governments are because they don't show any sign of threat at all. Through the entire time they're here, and uh, they they talk about how Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner spend literally, I think they say like a month to two months even deciphering the base level part of the language so that they can communicate with one another. And of course, when problems arise, it's because the idiot governments of the world decide, oh, they've been sitting there for too long, we're worried, we need to attack them. And it's like, that is exactly how something like this would work if it happened in our world. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So, I don't know. I just, I love the heptapods. I love, I love their design. I love their tech. You know, I just, I find it fascinating that the language and how the language connects to the, the way how they view time, how it connects to their circular language design. I just think all the attention to detail that, that was paid 
to these to these creatures are it's amazing furthering cementing that Villeneuve is a genius. He really is. Uh, he has not made a single bad film that I have watched. So I I think he's just going to continue to grow and be a great director. And that was a great pick, Ray. A very unique pick, for sure. So what is your next one, though? So my next one is another film. Well, a, it's a creature from a film in my youth that was really important to me. My brother and I used to watch this movie over and over again. Uh, It spawned a series of really horrible, horrible sequels that have gone on. I think as late as like 2020 was the last one that came out. And that is the Graboids from Tremors. (laughs) I, I was a huge fan of Tremors when I was a kid. I feel like that was another film that was like a gateway movie into me liking horror and science fiction movies. And this film uh, takes place in, or was shot in 1990. And what's so impressive about this is when you talk about practical effects, this movie is shot entirely practically. And the creature design in these movies, I love the way that the Graboids are introduced because... Have you seen Tremors before, Ray? I've seen the first one a long time ago. Yeah, so the original Tremors is really... I know some people say Tremors 2 Aftershocks is entertaining. I've never watched any of the sequels because I've been so afraid that it would ruin the experience of the original for me. But what I love about Tremors is the film has the this really small town and each character is super charismatic. They're, they all have these really overblown personalities that are really entertaining to watch. But when the Graboids are introduced at first, it's just their tongues and their tongues have another mouth on them and so when kevin bacon discovers the first one and they think that they've killed it they think that it's this really tiny creature that's going to be really easy for them to stop to the point where like one of the kids gets a hold of it and they're like posing with it at the local grocery store as a way for like the grocery store manager to make extra money which is really funny to me and they're like okay well we can stop these they're not that big and then when you find out that that's just a smaller part of this incredibly large creature creature that is sucking people underground and eating them whole and then when the creatures come out of like the wall and stuff it's just so impressive how much detail there was put into the way that these creatures look and they are huge and there's so many great moments where it's like moving through outside and they use this the the way that they set these sets up to where they can like raise the ground to make it look like this huge worm creature is coming at you and I just always had such an immense respect for the filmmakers in this movie, Ron Underwood, the director, uh, and that he wanted this to feel so suspenseful. And the creature is withheld from me. The movie's like an hour and a half long, and you don't really see it in its full form until the first probably like 35 minutes. And I know we didn't talk about this in detail, but one of the things I love about science fiction movies, especially from the era of like the 70s to the 90s, is withholding you seeing the creature for so long, which it in retrospect is probably a lot to do with the limited availability of technology there was to show these off in like their full form where now you have CGI, you can show something through an entire movie because it's done on a computer and it's for the most part always going to look good. 
Where this, it's like, we're going to hold off until the very last minute. Like a, a film Ray talked about in our summer horror movie episode, Jaws, where the shark is withheld from you for a very long period of time, which creates more suspense. But in, in theory, it's because Steven Spielberg had a hard time making it look good. And I think it's cool that limitations in film for so long have also created these really suspenseful and incredible films that would have never existed if it wasn't for the limitation of technology. No, I was just going to point out that I think you I think it'd be in your best interest to watch the sequels because 2 years ago you got a Tremor 7 starring John Heater. So I am very aware that that exists. Tremors is great. I haven't seen it in since I was a kid. Like I saw it when I was a kid, but I don't remember much, but I do Remember that, you know, and this is something that I don't think people like talk about enough when it comes to these movies like Tremors, you know, the, the whole premise, I feel like a lot of people think, oh, Tremors, like these, these like really B movie horror, but like, you know, when you see the creature from Tremors, it's, there's a reminiscence of, of other creatures in that same vein, you know, one that comes to mind right away is the Shai Hulud on the Dune movies, whether it's the book or the or either Villeneuve's or Lynch's film, the sandworms, you also have the sandworms on Beetlejuice. So I feel like this archetype of a creature where it's this underground dwelling creature, you know, you will have also have things like, like Chud, which are underground dwelling creatures. I feel like there's something so mystifying about the concept of a creature that's beneath your feet at all times and you can just come out and get you. And there's something so horrifying that they could be very well right underneath you and you wouldn't know it. Something really interesting I thought I would tell you, Ray, because I was reading about this when I watched the movie. Um, uh, S.S. Wilson, who's the guy who wrote this movie, uh, he, he was working in the Navy with one of the producers in the film. And they were in charge of creating safety videos for the Navy. And they climbed up on this rock when they were in the desert and um, S.S. Wilson looked at Brent Maddock and said, hey, what if there was something underneath these rocks that we couldn't get away from? And then when they started talking to Ron Underwood, who was actually the person who was working with National Geographic to help shoot these uh, documentaries, he said, hey, let's make these giant worms because I've been studying these land sharks that could actually exist. And they decided to... Uh, to, to put that into practice. And I wonder what you're saying, because Dune, obviously, the novel has been so influential. It makes you wonder, like, how much was taken from that on top of the experience that the two of them had. But I do know that most of them were, uh, the, the, the graboids that were dug out, they created these animatronics with lightweight foam, and that's how they created it. And I, I'm, I would just love to watch some kind of behind-the-scenes footage on how these things were made because they look incredible. They do. They're not dated at all. Like, I feel like a lot of these creatures look dated, but they, they really don't. Practical effects to me are so charming, and I love practical effects. And I hate, like, when the, the Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, when they announced that prequel, the company that was working on the prequel to The Thing shot that entire movie with practical effects, and the studio said, no, kids aren't going to like this. They're going to think it looks too lame and old. We're going to reshoot everything with CGI. And if you go online and look at the practical effects that they shot originally for the Thing prequel, it's incredible. Like, 
when you have that limitation of there's only so much you can work with, you create magic. You really do. Yeah, I I practical effects for the win all day long for sure. 100%. So that is me talking about tremors. Ray, I'm ready to hear your next pick. So I know we just praise the hell out of practical effects, but my next pick is not so practical. It's actually very CGI heavy, but it's, <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those examples fine. that when CGI is done well, it works wonders. And it's not all CGI. There's some practicality to it. And you'll see what I mean when I bring it up. And my next pick is um, the Shimmer from Annihilation. Oh, the, sh- the Shimmer from Annihilation looks really awesome. Uh, I agree. I, I think that it is... A- Obviously, we've both talked before that we're uh, Alex Garland science fiction fans between this and another film I love, uh, Ex Machina, which has amazing CGI. And yes, the shimmer looks incredible in this movie. Honestly, all of the visual effects in this movie look incredible. So the reason why I wanted to bring up the shimmer... So I've talked about this, you know, a little bit before. I'm a huge fan of um, Lovecraftian horror. I feel like H.P. Lovecraft has been was really good at, you know, despite his problematic nature, he was really good at pioneering these like cosmic horror type creatures. And I feel like Jeff Vanderveer's novel Annihilation was heavily inspired by like Lovecraftian themes of these abstract otherworldly creatures that came from different universes and then obviously Alex Garland was able to adapt while taking some liberties was able to adapt this novel and I love not only the shimmer but what the shimmer represents the effect that it has on the environment the effect that it has you know on the creatures you have some of the most you know frightening creature designs come from the mutations that they go through because of the shimmer and i feel like yeah the shimmer is really cool that like shimmering glow and area x as it's called in in the novel but what i was more drawn to is how that shimmer is mutating all of its environment around it yes which leads into one of my favorite scenes in the movie which is uh when natalie portman encounters the screaming bear which is one of one of my favorite CGI effects I've seen in a film in a quite some time. I love that the bear adapts the voice of its victims. Yes, oh my god, it's terrifying. And for all intents and purposes, those were the very last words of the victim. They don't really go into details, but I mean it would make sense that the, this other lady was crying for help as she's beaten, you know, eaten alive by this bear. Yes, and that that scene in particular, I felt like was one of the the best scenes in the entire film i felt like it was really impactful and kind of showed just the menacing nature of this creature that we really don't understand a lot of uh your understanding kind of builds up over time and what i love about this movie in particular too is like alex garland despite me not loving men i still feel like that he is a really talented and incredible director who also comes up with some really wild screenplay ideas and the obviously we're talking about the shimmer and just how amazing that is but i feel like the visual effects in this movie just in general are amazing like one of the scenes that i will never forget is when they walk past those people's figures that look like flowers i just remember that visual really sticking out heavily to me and like 
thinking about this world as a whole and just kind of how bizarre everything is and how when that when the scientists first go in it's horrifying thought and you're you're kind of like in the back of your head like where is this going to go and i don't think that anyone would have expected it to go as insane as it did but oh my god I'm glad you picked this, Ray, because I think that the shimmer is so interesting because it's not just like a one simplistic look. It it takes on different forms, and I think that's amazing. And that's why I wanted to bring up the shimmer because I feel like you hear the shimmer, you think of this like shimmery glow around that area, but no, it's it's what the shimmer, um, what the shimmer entails. You know, you have that alligator with the mutated teeth. You have you know, you have the bear, you have, you know, when you see Oscar Isaac's um, video, found footage video, where you can see their guts are kind of twisting and turning like they were, you know, some form of snake just kind of coiling around its intestines. And then I think one of my favorite things is one of those characters crawls over to die and they find his corpse, but it's been almost like, it was like a fungi growth and then his body has been spread upwards towards the wall. That scene haunted me. And there's one really quick thing I want to add about Annihilation as a whole, and I think it's important to bring up too. This isn't related to the creature element, but I feel like Ray and I in a couple past episodes have brought up, you know, the importance of inclusion in film and and being more progressive and making sure that, that, you know, films cover a wide array of characters. I feel like there's so many movies now that try to do that that are really preachy and kind of over the top. Like I think of like the the uh, girl power scene in the Avengers movie that felt so hammy and like tacked on where... You know, you look at a film like Annihilation, this is a film that is is all women. Essentially, without Oscar Isaac's character, this is all really intellectual female scientists who are going into this world to discover this thing. And rather than it be like a, look, it's, it's a female scientist, she's super intelligent. It's just already showing you from the start of like, these are powerful intellectual women who are going to figure out what is happening in this movie. And I loved when this came out and seeing that. And it really kind of made the movie even more impactful because it's like, great, you know, people saying that there's not enough films that exist about powerful women characters. This is a movie that's literally all powerful women characters. Not only are they powerful women characters, but there's two things that I also was really impressed by that, just to kind of add on to your point a little bit. A, you have all shades of women. You have a, a Latin woman. You have an African-American woman. Um, so you have all shades and all backgrounds. Like you hear about their backgrounds and the traumatic experiences that they've all had. But another thing, and this is something that I love, and I hope that this becomes more of a trending thing. It's obvious to all of us that all of those women are attractive, but they're never sexualized. They're not put on like some some skimpy tank top or some short booty shorts or something like that. No, they they are there to be scientists. They're there to be powerful. They're be, there to be badass, but they are powerful. They're never, it's not like, like um, Karen Gillian on Jumanji where they have to dress her in a skimpy outfit, you know? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're portrayed as they are. They, they wear comfortable clothing that's easier for them to get around in. They're, most of them have their hair pulled back or in a way that's comfortable to where it's like they're navigating through this space they've never been in before. They're not going to be like, um, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard in Jurassic World running around in heels. 
It's it's like it's it's pra- it makes sense. It's practical and it's you can tell Alex Garland and the entire creative staff wanted to make sure these characters were taken seriously and they did a really great job with that. The Shimmer is great. I love and I like I said I think they took a lot of um influence from Lovecraftian cosmic horror, which is one of the biggest reasons why to bring it up. I love when uh, Natalie Portman confronts the Shimmer towards the end of the film when it's in the form of like the weird almost like dark ball of fog. That has like the red lights emanating from it. That's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite moments in the film because once it becomes to where it looks like a guy in a rubber suit, it's kind of cheesy. But that part like is so intimidating and horrifying. Yeah, I love that. I I love the shimmer. I think it's such a fascinating complex. And I wish, I mean, on concept thing, I wish we had more abstract conceptual creatures like that. One thousand percent. And hopefully I know men didn't do super well in the box office, despite me really enjoying that movie. I I had some problems with it, but I thought that it was good. I'd love to see Alex Garland dive back into the science fiction world in his next movie. Yeah, I'm excited. So that that is my pick. What is what is your number four? Yeah, so my next pick, believe it or not, and and Ray, you've made a really big point of this on the podcast, and I think it's important about, like, gatekeeping not only with music, but also with, like, film. And this is a horror classic, essentially, that I had not seen until, I believe, last year was the first time that I watched it. And this isn't just one movie. This is has been around over the years. It's been something that people have gravitated towards. But I'm going to focus very specifically on the look and feel of the 1988 film. And that is The Blob. Hey, yeah, there it is. Have you seen The Blob? Once a long time ago. Yeah, so the 1988 Blob is incredible. Uh, the original that's in the Criterion Collection, it has its place. Um, but it's definitely not the best movie ever, but this blob was actually written by the great, uh, Frank Darabont, who wrote Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, the, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, which is my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film, just an incredible horror slash science fiction writer, and what I love about this movie is, like what I've said before, it's all practical effects, Everything in this with the blob is really practical. And what I love is that with the blob, it doesn't have a specific form. It's just the way that it attacks people. And essentially, like, it's eating people to grow larger. And to me, there's something about that that is just incredibly horrifying. So this film, the the 1988 version, it's this small, almost like one of my favorite shows ever is David Lynch's Twin Peaks. It's a very... Twin Peaks-esque town where, like, at the beginning of the film, the camera is, like, going through this small town and everything's empty. And the reason why it's empty is everyone in the town is at the high school football game. And you're introduced to all these different characters, and there's actually a really great, like, bait-and-switch at the beginning of the movie that you think you're following around your lead character, and he's killed off in, like, the first ten minutes. And the death scene is so horrifying because when it takes you over, the blob surrounds you and you can see the outline of the person in the blob when it's when the person's being eaten but slowly their body starts to essentially melt and there are so many images in this movie that 
just stick with me and horrify me. There's this really great scene in the movie where one of our lead characters goes to escape and she gets trapped inside of a phone booth and the blob slowly starts to creep around the sides of the phone booth and just thinking like, this isn't like a fast moving creature. It's moving slowly, but it is hyper intelligent in the way that it traps people to get you caught into a certain circumstance so that you can't get away and to know that this was manufactured by the government it's not like it's this is like something that the government found out about and that they've investigated on and helped create more of and essentially like it's our own government fucking us and <laughs> that's this get out and all of the people who are killed and are are uh, hurt because of it and i feel like this movie has a really interesting commentary but it's also just a great horror film it's really terrifying the the blob itself has this really bright pink color to it which makes it at first you see that and you think that it's not really intimidating but i think that because of choosing a color like pink and typically pink isn't something that you would associate with like horror or frightening it really kind of just adds to that overall suspense and horror of how disgusting the kills are in this movie there's something also to be said about these types of creatures because you know up to, up to this point we've talked about creatures that have a logic to them there's there's a logic there is a there are rules there are certain sets of, of of rules and guidelines to follow but a creature like the blob those creatures those types of creatures like the blob the stuff creatures like that are pure chaos. There are no guidelines. There are no rules. They're just there to destroy and cause mayhem. And I feel like that's almost more frightening that there isn't a way to understand them because they don't even talk. They don't even have facial expressions. They are just a blob out to destroy and cause pain and harm. And that's almost more frightening in a way. Exactly, because the only logic that the blob has is it wants to grow larger. That's it. It wants to get bigger, and the way that it gets bigger is eating people. And it's it's like to know that there isn't anything else other than it's going to eat you because it wants to get as big as it possibly can. It's horrifying. And then the way that we discover how to defeat the blob is really great, and it's very subtle. And it's just like, in my opinion... One of the things with this pick and my first pick is, obviously, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, I'm a huge horror movie fan, and I love when horror and science fiction have that crossover, and this is the perfect blend of horror and science fiction, and it's executed flawlessly, and it's honestly, even though it took me this many years to watch the 1988 version, it has become one of my favorite horror films of all time. It's so much fun. It's hilarious. It's brutal. It's just... Everything I could ever want in a horror movie. And I know if you look at the original Blob, which I think was done in like the 1950s, it's a little cheesier. Obviously, the effects weren't as great. But the vi the team working on the visual effects in this movie and knowing that it's not done, or not done with CGI, it's all practical. It's just really impressive to watch how they managed to execute this. And there's a little bit of like compositing at the end of the movie when they're trying to make it look giant that doesn't hold up 100% now, but everything on the smaller scale kills looks amazing. And I just thought that it would be fun to bring that up. Awesome. I have to revisit that movie. I saw it a long time ago and I barely remember the plot details, but I remember the blog. It's, it's an amazing, fun, 
incredible horror movie that's one of those ones that like you can watch it all year but when the month of october comes around it just has that feel it takes place during the fall it's just amazing i love it i could rave about it for forever so rather than me rave about it for forever ray go ahead and hit me with your next pick for my number four pick the gloves are coming off nate i i cannot stand idly by and let us commit the crime of not talk about the xenomorphs yeah, the Xenomorphs, uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, creature designs ever from the great H.R. Uh, Giger. Which, by the way, H.R. Giger did, the design of that creature is so intricate because there's so much, like, there's so much symbolism of sexuality and motherhood um, and just, but at the same time, in such a horrific and twisted way that you just... You know, the Xenomorph is such an iconic creature in the sci-fi, in the horror world, sci-fi world, and I would just extend it to film world in general. It has warranted to be called Alien. Like, you think of Alien, you don't think of these tall, lanky, green creatures. You think of the Xenomorph, a creature that has been so iconic that it keeps on going, even if the movie isn't great. And I'm not referring to the Alien movies, I'm talking more about Alien Resurrection. Um, even if the movie in the franchise isn't as good as others, you can still rely that the Xenomorph is going to look incredible. Yeah, and what I want to say too about the Xenomorph, because I think it's really important to bring this up, is the conversation that Ray and I have had throughout this whole episode, which is that limitation in this time period is everything. And at the end of the day, the Xenomorph design is amazing, but when you watch the original Ridley Scott film, it's a guy in a rubber suit. I mean, that's what it is. But what is so incredible about it is the way Ridley Scott uses lighting in the film and hides a lot of the xenomorph to make the look of it more impactful and obviously as technology has grown xenomorph has looked more and more frightening i mean if you look even at james cameron's aliens it's really a bunch of guys in rubber suits jumping around but it's the way that it's shot and the way that they focus on the head mostly because the head is the most horrifying part of the xenomorphs and the way it looks at the teeth and the tongue and that's amazing because i always think about alien alien in my opinion is a perfect film. I love Alien. The the thing I I that always gets me about the original Alien is when the alien gets shot out of the airlock at the end of the film and it's like you can tell it's a guy in a rubber suit because of the way that it's lit. But the rest of that film, it's so well hidden and they do such a great job of just accentuating all the parts of the xenomorph that make it so frightening throughout the film. And there's something so slimy about it. Every time you see like just just slaver coming off. You know, it's so animalist, like animalistic, relentless. Um, something I also love about the alien creature, the xenomorph, is, the, you know, when they try to... And I think this actually happens more with the face hugger, that when they try to kill it, its blood is acidic. So even trying to, like, chop it up or tear it apart, there is still harm. There's still danger in trying to kill it too because if their blood gets on you it could burn through your skin so it makes it even more horrific yes 100 percent. and i will say that even even not talking about the xenomorph the thing that scares me probably the most in alien is the face hugger oh there's something so so eerie about this thing wrapping around your brain and basically impregnating you with a chest burster 
face huggers there's that scene in aliens where there's all of those face huggers in that one room and that scares the shit out of me every time i watch that movie there's something about that creature and the way that it moves that knowing that it's all practical effects it just looks so amazing like there, there's something about it that just sends chills down my spine thinking about that thing gripping onto your face and not having any idea knowing what's gonna happen to you like oh it just it, it creeps me out yeah so i mean we can obviously we can talk all day about the xenomorphs and their design and the representations that he he giger was trying to do with with it um we could hell we could do a whole episode just on the xenomorphs alone but i don't want to take up the whole time talking about xenomorphs so all i want to add is that they're a classic they will forever be a classic they will go down you know as the most iconic sci-fi creature i feel like we've gotten so many copycats out of them some of them are great i'm thinking of movies like life which is very reminiscent of the original alien it's a great movie but it's obviously a an homage to alien we've had some bad ones too along the way but Alien redefined the genre and redefined what sci-fi horror could be. And we all have, you know, Ridley Scott and the Xenomorph to thank for that. 1,000% could not agree with you more. So what the heck is your final pick? So my final pick, and the reason why I left this to be my final pick, is because, as I just discussed, I am a huge horror fan. And I love when horror and science fiction kind of collide and... This is a film that might not always be classified as a science fiction film. It's actually a franchise of film, but it is 100% science fiction. And I want to talk about the Cenobites from Hellraiser. Ah, there's, there's the Cenobites. Yes, I love the Cenobites because I love that each one of them has such a unique and interesting design. But I think what's great is, and obviously I'm a huge fan of the first two Hellraiser films. Past that, they get kind of dumb. They're not like 100% the you know greatest movies ever made. But the first two films are phenomenal. And what I love about the Hellraiser films is that yes, they're terrifying. They're these creatures from another world who are actually like human beings transformed into these creatures that travel through space. Uh, because a lot of people have this misconception that Cenobites are demons. They're not. They're creatures from another world. Uh, it's really heavily pushed into in the third Hellraiser film. When you look at them, they're these creatures that are fascinated with the idea of the correlation between pain and sex. And that like pain and pleasure are these two things that are completely correlated and they torture people essentially by getting them to the point where the only sexual pleasure they can have anymore comes from this immense amount of pain. And what I love about the Cenobites is that each one is designed in a way that kind of has like a unique personality that can be attributed to them even though it's not like talked about in great detail throughout the film it's like you can just see like and the obviously pinhead has the iconic nails all throughout the entirety of his skull you have the chatterer from the first film 
who like has he has no eyes and no like real definitive facial marks it's just his mouth is completely pulled back to where the only sound that you can hear is his teeth chattering which to me is just like horrifying you have the character that's referred to as butterball who's just like this really overweight looking creature that has like slime just like pouring down from his face and just looks so absolutely disgusting you have the female cenobite who she has like her throat completely ripped open to where it's exposed with all these wires coming out of her mouth and it just kind of sends your mind soaring of like the the uh the attribution of this idea of pleasure and pain correlated and how much of that the those points that they're inflicting pain on themselves are correlated to the idea of pleasure as well and then you think about like they're really dressed in what almost looks like bdsm bondage clothing it's all dark black and it's showing like different parts of their skin and exposing that and then how especially in the original hellraiser film it correlates to the overall plot of this husband and wife couple who are having trouble in their marriage and the woman's old flame who literally was kidnapped by the cenobites comes back and is in her life and satisfies her in a way that her husband has not and the conflict that comes between the two of those characters and understanding how the pain inflicted from the Cenobites correlates to that overall plot arc and I just think it's fascinating and there's obviously a very deep lore that runs through Clive Barker's stories that he wrote about this and I think not enough people understand that this is a science fiction franchise it's not just a crazy body horror movie there is a lot of really interesting science fiction lore attributed to the Hellraiser universe and I would have been remiss if I did not bring it up you know it's interesting the Xenobites have um, you're familiar with Resident Evil, right? Yes, one thousand percent. I was thinking of that when you were when you just said it. <laughs> I honestly, the chat, the chatterer, or what's what's his name again? Yeah, the chatterer. Mm-hmm. He reminds me of well, I sh- I guess I sh- the other way around. Nemesis reminds me. Nemesis has to have been inspired by that. One thousand percent, he was for sure. The facial the facial structure is almost one hundred percent the same. Yeah, so like I love that character. In fact, from the moment I saw that, I was like, look, it's Nemesis. Um, there's also something so evil and chaotic about the Xenobites who you know they have no remorse. They have no pain they have they in fact they welcome it they welcome the pain they welcome so there's something so ah so horrific about it and so twisted and obviously we all know clive barker has had a very uh different especially back then his lifestyle was not as you know well received maybe you know people being less open-minded back then but there's something just so twisted and it wouldn't shock me if Clive Barker was really trying to draw from his you know from what I understand he had a pretty hard upbringing a pretty you know hard life in general so it wouldn't surprise me if he's drawing from those experiences to really bring the point home of that pain and suffering but also something pleasurable about it so go ahead and hit me with your number one ray i'm ready to hear it so you know i originally had a specific creature in mind but i know you're not as familiar as you would like to be with them so i decided that instead of focusing on the creature itself i'm going to focus on the subject matter of the creature because hopefully you have some thoughts to share as i 
make the topic a little bit more broad. I was going to bring up Godzilla. I decided to extend the topic to kaijus in general. Yeah, that's a. I figured you were probably going to pick this. Like I said, my familiarity with all of them is very small. So I'll be interested to hear you talk about it a little bit. Well, so like, you know, there's something... I One of my favorite, favorite subgenres is kaiju movies. Uh, I, I love kaiju movies. I adore the Toho um, world and all of they've created. Um, you know, they, they have pioneered all of these giant creature franchise. I know that the concept of the giant creature started before Toho and Godzilla. You know, you had... King Kong in the 30s, arguably one of the first kaijus, but we had all these big creatures. And I love all of the different kaiju movies that have come out ever since. I'm aware that they're giant creatures destroying worlds, but you know, you, you've had other inspirations like the Clover Monster or Pacific Rim, um, to name a few. But Godzilla himself you know, Ishiro Honda, the, the, the creator and director of Godzilla, Godzilla was meant to be, at least the original film, a social commentary on the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings that happened. Um, I did some reading, and Godzilla's, like, scaly skin that he has w- was taken from a... Um, was inspired by the boils that some of the survivors of the nuclear bombings had. A lot of the survivors from those nuclear bombings, because of their radiation, they developed these really bumpy, dark boils on their skin, and they took that as inspiration for Godzilla's skin. So, I I mean, I love kaijus. I feel like there's a lot of people look at kaijus and they think, oh, they're these giant, fun creatures that destroy everything, but there was an intention of, you know, creating this you know, nuclear lizard that came and destroyed Tokyo, Japan that resembled a burn victim from, at least the skin of a burn victim from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And then there was another movie later on that came out, you know, a few years ago, Shin Godzilla, which it's also like a reactionary commentary on how, according to them, obviously I I, I wasn't, I wasn't there, so I wouldn't know, but according to what I've read, Shin Godzilla was a commentary on how poorly the Japanese government handled all of these different natural disasters that happened in the island of Japan, and they took Godzilla, and they put Godzilla in a situation where he's destroying Japan, and the government can't make up their mind about how to handle it, almost like a social commentary on how they handle different... Uh, natural disasters that happen in Japan. And, you know, you, like I said, you've had other other creatures, like you've had the movie Colossal, which I know you mentioned you want to watch, where the creature is more representative of Anne Hathaway's struggles with alcoholism. You know, you have creatures like Clover from the Cloverfield franchise, Pacific Rim, which, you know, it's arguably a commentary on how we are not taking care of our environment. So there's so many things about these kaiju films that I feel like a lot of people overlook. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, kaiju movies are saying something. You know, you have Godzilla. We talked about earlier about, like, creatures that are good 
but are misunderstood as bad, like King Kong. You know, so I feel like there's something really fun but really profound about kaijus overall. One thousand percent. I think that was a great pick, Ray, and I think it's interesting the cultural correlation that those films have to the Japanese culture and just how much lore there is surrounding it and I'm really looking forward to dive in and watch some of these movies so hopefully we can do an episode on it later where we talk about it in more detail. So we're going to plan on doing a full episode on that. So that is Ray and I's creature picks. I thought those were really great picks and I really had a lot of fun discussing those in detail with Ray. And now, since we've gone a little long, we will quickly talk about what we've watched this week. Ray, if you want to go ahead and talk about what you saw this week. Um, I actually saw quite a handful of movies, but I'll, I'll talk about the one that kind of impressed me the most. And that was Shudder's Mad God. Um, I recently re-signed up for Shudder um, and I decided that one of the biggest reasons was to watch Mad God. Um, so I re-signed up for Shudder and I watched it last night. And Nate, I don't think I've seen a wilder movie. It was, it, it's so hard to describe because it was, it was weird. It was grotesque. Um, I can see how this is not a movie for everybody. Um, there was some gross, grotesque moments. But there was also something so deep and profound about it. There's no dialogue in it, just incredible sound design and an incredible score. So the score and the sound design are front and center of the storytelling aspect of it. And that was something that drew me a lot to it. The fact that, you know, the music and the sound was the narrative, you know, was front and center of the narration. And obviously, you know, it's stop motion. So there's a lot of like really dark and bizarre imagery and I just I loved it. it it was it was definitely one that have stuck with me that I'm still thinking about to this moment that is awesome well on my front I watched the new uh predator film prey on Hulu and it was a lot of fun I didn't know what to expect getting into it but it has some really great fight sequences and some really great performances and it's definitely one that I think uh is worth being in the franchise so I'm glad I got to check it out so that is what Ray and I watched this week uh, if you stay tuned for our last episode of the sci-fi series that Ray and I are doing, we're going to talk about time travel. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, I think a really fun um, topic from sci-fi, you know, sci-fi has a lot of dark and dreary and, you know, commentaries on the world and the way we live, but I feel like you have these different types of time traveling movies that could bring some of the funner aspects of things. So I'm excited to talk about some of these time traveling movies and, you know, and, and the sci-fi season on, on a really fun or otherwise really interesting and thought provoking note. Yes, I cannot wait. So that was the episode. Ray and I are going to be talking about time travel movies next week. As always, if you'd like to follow us over at the Film Monsters Podcast on Instagram, Ray is always posting over there. We're talking about the episodes, running some polls, doing some fun stuff. So head on over there if you'd like to ask us any questions. We also have our personal Instagrams, Ray over at Analog C, and myself at My Exit Unfair. So feel free to hit us up and ask us any questions you would like about episodes or the podcast in general we love to hear feedback from you and that is the episode we had so much fun and thanks so much for listening and tune in next week where we talk about 
you know, uh, these time traveling movies because when we hit 88 miles per hour, you're going to hear some serious shit. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.